0: All right. Well, among the COVID headlines that we're watching on this Wednesday, concerns abound when it comes to the Delta variant, its trajectory, its impact, its spread. We're trying to understand it, even for those of us who've been vaccinated. We've also heard from uh, Moderna's chairman vowing to keep testing the drug makers COVID vaccine against variants and advised against putting our guard down as new mutations continue to emerge. That coming from our Bloomberg New Economy Catalyst event. Well, back with us and form voice, uh, Dr. Dave Westner. He's professor of biology at Davidson College. He's with us once again on the phone from Davidson, North Carolina. Dr. Westner, good to have you here with us. When you hear Delta variant, what do you say?
2: Well, hi, Carol. It's nice, nice to be back. Uh, yeah, it, it is worrisome. Um yeah, I think this variant. There's clear evidence that it's much more transmissible than the the Alpha variant, which had been the predominant variant. Um, yeah, as we saw in. Uh, the UK, it spread rapidly and quickly became the the major variant in that country. Um, And right now, I think about 20% of new infections in the US are caused by by Delta, and, and that number certainly is going to, that proportion certainly is going to increase in the near future.
0: What does that mean for those of us who are starting to love the world reopening? We're vaccinated, check, check, check. Our family's vaccinated, check, check, check. And we're going to restaurants. We're living again. That's how it feels, yet with a cautious eye on what might happen, I don't know, in a month, in two months, in six months. How do we need to look at this?
2: Yeah, and I'm with you there completely, Carol. When the CDC changed their mask guidelines, mm-hmm. I was all too happy to, to leave mine at home when I went to the, the coffee shop or the, or the grocery store. Um, you know, I think we can't let our guards down completely just yet. I think that's what this this variant is is showing us. Um, you know, for fully vaccinated people, the the vaccine is still highly effective against this variant. It's mm-hmm. probably less effective against this variant than the original strain, but still really effective. Um, You know, one of the questions that's still out there, though, is, you know, if you are uh, vaccinated, can you have an asymptomatic infection and potentially spread it to other people who are not vaccinated? You know, I think that question has not been completely addressed yet. Um, And then we have a whole cohort of people who are unvaccinated, um, especially the the younger kids. I mean, Mm -hmm. vaccines are only available to people who are 12 and, and up. Um, yeah, so the, the younger younger people, people under 12, um, I mean, I, I'm worried about a big spike in cases among younger people.
0: Right. Well, and I do wonder, I have some family members with some underlying health issues, and the question is, well, wait, should I go back and start wearing my mask because maybe I'm a little bit more vulnerable, even if I get, even though I'm vaccinated, if I get this stronger variant, could I be at risk?
2: It, it, right, I, I think that's a reasonable concern to have. You know, there's there's conflicting data so far about whether this variant is is more severe than the other variants. Um, there's a report from Scotland um, published in the Lancet just a few days ago,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, in which the researchers concluded that people infected with Delta were twice as likely to be hospitalized as people infected with the the previous variant Alpha, um, and, and that's. Really troubling, um, but but I think the jury's still out on that. I mean, that was one study, a relatively small number number of people. Um, but yeah, I think for for all of us, whether you're um, have underlying conditions or not, right, it, it's it, it's worth being concerned about the the transmission of this this variant.
0: Do we also need to think about an even more potent variant still emerging?
2: It, that's a possibility. I mean, viruses mutate all the time. I, mean, I think we've talked about that mm-hmm. before. We have, and you know, in the United States, we have a fair amount of vaccination, 50, 60 percent, somewhere in there. Um, other parts of the world, you have really, really low vaccination rates and we see the virus um, spread occurring dramatically. Um, Any time the virus is spreading and being transmitted from person to person, the emergence of a new variant is a very real possibility. So, so yes, Delta is not the last variant we're going to see.
0: How much are you also thinking about booster shots? I was having a conversation with some colleagues earlier who, again, were embracing, wow, I'm going out, I'm really enjoying this. Um, But do I need to think about when it gets colder again here, certainly on the eastern portion of the United States, is something going to happen again in the fall potentially?
2: Right. I I think –
0: Sorry to be such a bummer. (laughs) I'm an optimist.
2: I I have that – concern, especially as it gets colder, we get into the fall, the the early winter, and people are indoors more, um, in more crowded indoor settings. Are we going to see a resurgence in in cases when kids are back in school, etc.? In in terms of boosters, the information so far suggests that the vaccines um, provide fairly long-lasting
0: protection. What's long? What is long?
2: But yeah, we only have six months, a year's worth of data so far. We can't say these vaccines protect for two years because the vaccines haven't been deployed for, for that long. Um, and, and I think it will get that data as time goes by. Um, a booster shot very well may be um, a thing that you have to get a yearly booster, for instance.
0: Um, Dr. Wester, just real quickly, about 25 seconds. I mean, how will we know when and if we need a booster? Are we just going to start seeing cases pop up and we'll, and we'll just figure it out that way? It's going to be kind of random, just quickly.
2: Hopefully, it's not random. Well, uh, but you know yeah. what I mean? Like, how do, how, does, how do
0: you guys assess that we're going to need it in just quickly. Yeah,
2: there are studies ongoing where the um, researchers are measuring the antibody level in uh-huh. people who had been vaccinated, and they're okay. looking for a decline in that antibody level.
0: Okay. You always cover so much. Thank you so much and clarify so much. Dr. Dave Westner, professor of biology at Davidson College.
4: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Well, the fourth annual heist issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, it is out this week, hitting newsstands tomorrow online and on the Bloomberg. One of the stories is also among our most read on the Bloomberg today. It's about the fall of the billionaire Gucci master. You know you want to know more. Here with more is uh, Businessweek freelance writer Evan Ratliff. He is on the phone in Delaware. Evan, it is an incredible read, an incredible in- individual. First of all, tell us about who is the billionaire Gucci
4: master. <laughs> Thanks. The, bil- the, the billionaire Gucci master is uh, a guy named Ramon Abbas is his real name. He he went by Ray Hush Puppy online, or his handle was Hush Puppy. Um, <laughs> he was an Instagram influencer. He had a couple of million followers. He was known for his portrayals of luxury. He was always photographed in you know designer clothes standing in front of Rolls Royces, Ferraris that he had bought, uh, living a very opulent lifestyle. He lived in Dubai. Uh, he had been born in Nigeria, but he had moved to Dubai. And uh, that was who he was for the world. He was uh, a kind of a small, small celebrity. He hung out with other celebrities. Um, but as it turned out, Uh, He is alleged to be also involved in in some of the big cyber scams of the last few years.
0: I have to say, for those of us, of course, we're on Bloomberg Radio, but we're also on YouTube. And those who are on YouTube can can see we're just showing some video of him running into a helicopter, sitting down. I think it was a helicopter. Maybe it was a plane. uh, I think wearing a lot of Louis Vuitton, a little Louis Vuitton next to him and eating something on what looked like a private plane. What did he do that put him uh, and gave him a place in the heist issue?
4: Well, his uh, his reason for being in the heist issue is that he is alleged by the U.S. government uh, to have participated in some of the largest cyber scams of the last few years uh, under the name business email compromise scams. That's what they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's alleged to be a person who moved large sums of money uh, as part of these scams. And some of the targets of the scams were were enormous, including they were uh, trying to steal hundred million, over $100 million from a Premier League soccer team. Uh, they were stealing from businesses in the U.S., law firms, other businesses. And they were tracking him. They eventually arrested him in Dubai, and he's facing trial in Los Angeles.
0: And I want to bring in the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Joel Weber. This is just... A fascinating tale, but it's not a tale, it's true.
1: I mean, that's the best part about the heist <laughs> issue. Um, and, you know, Evan, um, this, as I tweeted earlier, you know, in the history of the heist issue, this goes down as like maybe one of the very best heist stories. One of the things that captivated me about it is this idea that, you know, BEC scams, which I know you you, you just briefly hit on here. They're bigger than ransomware, and like no one wants to talk about them because they're such a big problem. Like, like put put that in perspective. I mean, to to think about this being bigger than ransomware is a little bit of a mind blower, right?
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really flies under the radar a bit because it's just it's, it doesn't hit the news for one reason. You know, ransomware is very dramatic. You know, someone's being held hostage on behalf for money, and BEC scam is a more it's a more technical scam. We can go into how how it works exactly. But part of the problem is that if you just transfer money to a scammer and you've been tricked into doing it, you know no no company wants to talk about that. If you're a public company, you, you might have to disclose it if the, if the number's large enough. But no one else is going to talk about that because then you lose the trust of your customers, of your suppliers, of your clients. It seems like you're completely incompetent if you're doing this. when in fact, it's a
1: very, very clever way to extract money from companies. Okay, so let's just talk about it a little bit more because it is... So simple, right? That's the problem with it. It's like to defend against this. I mean, it's incredibly difficult because all it takes is somebody changing a digit. If you're doing this as a day job, all of these orders are flying around all the time. How how does it uh, how do they pull it off?
4: So the way it works in its sort of most simplest form is it's business email compromise. So obviously they compromise an email and that's usually going to be they're breaking into a corporate email account at some decently sized company they want to hit someone mid-level or above hopefully someone who's interacting with big payments and they'll research the companies to try to figure out who that is once they're inside the email they're just going to wait they're just going to sit there watch the traffic watch what comes in and out try to learn how the payments work and then when a large invoice hits let's say a law firm has an invoice for a million dollars then that's when they insert themselves so they know exactly how to create a fake invoice that's going to look real. They'll immediately send it as a follow-up. They'll change the bank details to their own and say, "Here's a new invoice. Sorry, that one had the wrong bank details on it." And because they're coming from inside an email account, they have all the details right, they have the language right. Oftentimes people who are doing these payments just they just overlook it. Uh, they just they're doing many of these a day potentially or at least a week. And so they hit yes on the payment. They authorize it to the bank, and then it's immediately gone from the, the scammers' bank account to another one overseas, to another one overseas, and the money becomes impossible
1: to trace. So, Hush Puppy, let's bring it back to, uh, the, the, can I just say that again? Hush Puppy, let's bring it back to Hush Puppy. I want a nickname like that. Um, uh, Evan, what is your name, your, your code name? Did you have a code name for this story? <laughs> I did use a code name. I,
4: I love Ray Hush Puppy. It's, just, it's so enticing, I and mean, it's a brilliant Instagram name. Uh, because it just, it conveys something that you just want to learn more about Ray Hushpuppy.
1: And, and I, there are these robes that he wears in some of the photos that we have, and it says Hushpuppy on the back. I, for the record, I was like, I want a robe that says the heist issue. Like, I want I want that <laughs> robe. Um, so, so Evan, let's talk more about him, because I, one of the most fascinating elements of this story is that um, Hushpuppy came from Nigeria and, and Lagos, which has this um, history of being a place where you know Nigerian princes operated, so so how did he how did he come up and how did he break out of all of that? Yeah, he grew up in Lagos. I mean,
4: he was you know by his own account, he was poor growing up. He struggled. He actually had a sister who died of typhoid, you know, by his uh, recollection, because they couldn't pay the medical bills. Um, so he was someone who very explicitly was trying to get out and he saw the wealthier parts of Lagos and he aspired to that. He dreamed of that. He was always interested in designer brands. And so he did escape and he eventually went to Malaysia. And that's when he started building, you know, his his influencing. And, you know, the the crimes that he's alleged to, to commit, these business compromise scams, you know, a lot of them do come from Nigeria, but it's a bit of a double edged sword because, you know, Nigerians have been accused of these scams for many years when in fact they come from all over the world. So there's a sort of stereotype that precedes Nigerians that then you know he reinforces and it becomes this sort of vicious circle when in fact you know, obviously right. there's a Nigerian tech scene, there's all these people who uh, are very upset that he is in fact reinforcing that
0: idea. Well, to get every juicy tidbit, check out the story in Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's online and at Bloomberg.com.
4: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
0: I am Carol Masser. Tim is off this week. Well, today virtually was the Bloomberg New Economy Catalyst event. It highlighted innovators, visionaries, scientists, policymakers, and entrepreneurs accelerating solutions to today's great problems. One of them is Sarah Menker. She's a former commodities trader who worked for Morgan Stanley. She took what she saw, she learned from it, and she founded Grow Intelligence, which gathers tons of data and then uses AI and machine learning to tackle lots of things, including some really big problems. One of them, Food insecurity, and I caught up with her and talked about it specifically. What her company does in using AI to look at data and solve that problem.
5: Grow Intelligence is a company I, I founded um, in 2014, and it really is a story at the end of the day that tells the story of what on Earth is going on. Um, and I say that because you know, oftentimes we use data to to tell stories, um, and oftentimes when we think of Earth, it you know, we think of satellite images just showing us pictures of our Earth, whereas Earth is sort of this interplay between our Earth's actual ecology and our human economy and the interrelationships between the two. And what we've done is we've built um, a data platform using artificial intelligence to capture sort of data around the world about our Earth, as well as our human economy, connect the dots and start to tell stories about things like You know, where the trajectory of food security is going, or how to, um, become better resilient to climate change. Um, And and really it's a company focused on tackling these two major problems, which is essentially around food security and climate change at global scale.
0: Huge issues, right? That obviously impact everybody. Data collection can be good, it can be bad, right? It can be biased. So tell me how you go about it. Yeah,
5: It's garbage in, garbage out. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And so we, we say curated by human intelligence, scaled through artificial intelligence. And I think this is, a really important part of how we do our work, but how AI should be done, which is that you need domain experts, you need humans mm-hmm. that first actually assess the data in the very early days, because as you're collecting data and you're getting data, you know, we get data from over 45,000 different sources around the world, and it comes in Government, many Government, private, public, everything. Governments, private companies that we license from, um, trade organizations, you know, um, all sorts of, and then they come in many different formats and languages, and you need human experts initially that sort of do the assessment of the data. Um, that that that. Document it that, that map the definition of it, that help create the dictionary. Mm-hmm. And then you start to use artificial intelligence to scale the mapping of that knowledge to better understand the interconnectedness that exists um, through the data. But it always really starts with the human intelligence component that helps with sort of the curation in the beginning. right? And then you let the machines take over. And this makes your predictive models work better. It makes the knowledge graphs, the systems of sort of how we understand Understand today works significantly better as well.
0: It's a diverse group. I know, speaking many different languages. <laughs> Very <laughs> yes, but it's good, right? Because you're dealing with a global, you know, global issues.
5: Yeah, I I always say, um, you know, your team has to resemble the world that's attempting to model.
0: I can hear your commodities background playing into this. What was it about your background in commodities and being in the Wall Street? financial community that made, they kind of got you to where you are today and said, all right, there are bigger issues, bigger problems. We need the tools to tackle it.
5: Yeah, I mean, it played a huge role. Um, I was an energy trader. And in the early days of sort of energy trading, if you had an oil producer that um, would come to the market and say, you know, I've discovered oil and I need to now produce this oil and I need some money for it mm-hmm. so therefore I need to sell it forward to you. And selling oil two years forward used to be a struggle. By the time I left, you know, oil producers, gas producers, etc could sell oil 10, 20 years forward long before it was outside the uh, outside the ground. Mm-hmm. Financial markets enabled that. And to, you know, for markets to develop, you need trust, you need baseline understanding and then people have their relative competitive advantage, right? Because what that does is it drives capital into markets, and capital drives innovation, and innovation drives very long-term change. Renewable energy, shale oil, shale gas, all of these technologies we take for granted had to be funded some way. And I had seen that agriculture was and still is, frankly, where maybe energy markets were in, if I'm being kind, like the early 90s. (laughs) so (laughs) They were behind, right? They're very behind. Right. Um, And so, you know, when you think of what happened in COVID last year, during COVID, and all of the shocks the system experienced when, you know, people were saying, are we running out of meat? Uh, You know, why are, you know, certain things just flying off shelves? And is there a shortage? That was really a function of, how short-term the food markets actually behave, Mm -hmm. meaning decisions are still being made day-to-day, week-to-week by grocers. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you take the most liquid agricultural market in the world, which is corn in the US, you're lucky if you can sell it two
0: years forward. And that was Sarah Manker. She's founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence. This is a company that she founded after being a commodities trader at Morgan Stanley. They gather tons of data from global sources. They use it using AI and machine learning. And they address things like you heard her talk about food insecurity, one of the major problems that a lot of uh, countries are dealing already. We saw it through the pandemic where companies uh, and countries specifically, if they were producer of some food item, a lot of them stopped exporting because they were trying to protect uh, their own citizens. So she is looking at that and working with clients. And her clients, I've got to say, are from all walks of life. They are food producers, they're food suppliers, they're governments, and they're also the financial world because increasingly we are seeing financial instruments, just like we've seen in the ESG world generally, that are looking to create uh, investment vehicles that are tackling some of these big problems like food insecurity. And of course, already we see it with climate change. So again, Sarah Manker, founder of Steve Grow Intelligence from the Bloomberg New Economy Catalyst event. You can see that entire interview and more like it at bloomberg.com slash new hyphen economy. These are 31 people that we've identified at uh, Bloomberg New Economy that are catalysts that are charting the global course out of the pandemic and really looking at creating a brighter, more sustainable future. Some of them are names you know. We mentioned uh, formerly um, or earlier the chairman of Moderna, that uh, individual also at part of this event, but a lot of them are names you don't know, but they're doing some incredible work. So I highly recommend you check it out uh, online and look at those conversations.
4: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Well, remember when day traders were snapping up shares of Hertz after it filed for bankruptcy last year? Well, today it actually is exiting from bankruptcy. We've got the ultimate winners of what uh, has happened over the past year. It's all in a story by Bloomberg's Kat Doherty. She is Bloomberg News high yield, distressed debt and bankruptcy reporter on the phone from Boston. Hey Kat, nice to have you here. Um, I feel like Hertz was that original meme stock.
3: It really was. And what's funny is that all of the gay traders that were buying into the company they were getting made fun of people were saying what what is the rationale behind this trade because uh on on the surface level a company that is in bankruptcy shareholders are more than likely to be completely wiped out getting absolutely nothing for their investment and so to, to buy shares of a bankrupt company is not always the best trade, but we've seen some situations where that hasn't been the case and it's becoming more and more frequent, even though this is not the norm. Hertz is probably the best example of this. Uh, a year ago, the, the shares, when, when you mentioned when the Reddit traders first get it, uh, started getting into the name, the shares were around 550 and that was considered huge, a big gain. And today, just to put it into context, the company is exiting um, and the shares are valued, some analysts say around $14. So that's well over double where they were a year ago.
0: Have we started trading yet on
3: Hertz? So the shares are trading right now. Okay, um, I, I have them up on my screen. They're around $9. They're mm. up a bit. They, they almost got to about 10 Um, but we'll see that the post-bankruptcy trading um, more likely uh, tomorrow, the company, this process will be finishing or culminating, let's say, today.
0: Okay, that's what I thought. I was trying to understand the trade a little bit here uh, as I looked at my Bloomberg. It is, you know, it comes down to pure math, right? In terms of these Reddit traders and how they benefited. So so it does,
3: but it also comes down to the business too. Mm. Um, we, We can't talk about this story without talking about, the, the boom in travel that we've seen. Um, the, this company, when it filed for bankruptcy, it was because no one was renting cars. There, was, there wasn't the ability or um, the, the need for, for car rentals at the time. Now, that changed pretty dramatically as folks started renting cars to take, uh, you know, whatever vacations or time away that they could um, without having to fly or, or do other things that were limited. So we saw a rebound, which has only continued, and then we also have to talk about the price of used cars that has also risen. Same reason, people are now buying up cars because they're moving out of the city into the suburbs. They want cars to travel to to get between places, um, and and then there's also the, the shortage of um, new cars that are that are getting put into the market. So Hertz actually benefited from selling a lot of its fleet at top dollar, and it used that cash to pay down debt, which has just benefited the company and its investors.
0: Right. The pandemic just did a 180 for this company or created a 180 for this company and did change the fundamentals.
3: Absolutely. I mean, at the beginning, Carl Icahn was the, the big investor behind Hertz. He backed out right as the company filed for bankruptcy. He wanted nothing to do with it. Hmm. And now we've seen this amazing snapback, um, the, the road to redemption. Uh, <laughs>
0: pardon my <word. laughs> No, it's perfect. Nice pun. I really like that. Kudos. Hey, but when you look at the balance sheet, it's a different company?
3: So, yes, yeah, it, it definitely is. This company is emerging with uh, less debt. It also has um, an, an influx of equity and the sponsor's um, Nighthead and Sertaris, this group that also included Apollo, some of the biggest names on Wall Street, they stepped in to support the company. They saw the value. They saw the recovery. And they wanted to be at the forefront. Um, and they are behind the business um, 100%. I spoke with um, the, the the head of, of uh, Sertaris, who, who said that the, that firm is planning on investing in her. And improving its infrastructure, its technology, so that it has a stronger
0: footing going forward. It is just You know, staggering. I was often kid on air about Harvard Business School case studies, but this is a great one. Who would have thought, right? First of all, nobody would have predicted the health pandemic, but who would have thought that how that would have changed dramatically? A company, a brand that we've known for a long time, and it's gone through various iterations over its history, right? In terms of consolidation in the industry and people being interested or activist investors, but here's the outcome. And I guess the future is still unknown. We'll see what life is like post-pandemic.
3: The future is unknown, and we'll be following this situation very closely.
0: Kat, great story uh, and a great read. Kat Doherty, she's high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Boston.
6: I'm driving my car. I turn on
3: the radio. Hey, how about you let me drive?
0: Oh, no. No, no, no.
3: Who's going to drive
4: you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive,
0: baby. It's the question
1: that drives us. This is the
4: drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: Just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Let's get to it with Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager, Margie Patel over at Wells Fargo Asset Management. $590 billion in assets under management. She's with us once again on the phone from Boston. Margie, uh, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. So it is an interesting week. We've had very tight ranges when it comes to those major equity averages. Is this just a case of... Pre earnings, pre jobs report, how do you see it?
6: Yes, it's a week of uh, uh, macro shifts back and forth. Uh, we've had the, uh, the, the value sector sort of play out when we had a little scare about interest rates moving up. Now we have the 10 year well under 150, and so it looks like the baton passed back over to the growth sector and some of the tech names.
0: All right. So (laughs) are there any long-term plays that you should be making right now? Or do we need to wait to get through earnings, get into the second half a little bit, maybe even wait till the fall to get a better indication of maybe what the Fed is up to? Uh, Our own Mike McKee talking with uh, the Dallas Fed President uh, Kaplan and talking about, you know, he's looking for maybe a tapering happening sooner rather than later, maybe even later on this year.
6: Well, they've talked about that, but Mm -hmm. I think that overall they are really committed to the same course they've been on, which is keeping short rates anchored pretty near zero, uh, continuing to buy securities in the long end, and I don't think they're going to waver from that policy. They they continue to feel inflation is transitory, and as long as they feel that way, that's what's going to determine monetary policy and, and says the markets will continue
0: to move up. All right, so how do you play it right now?
6: Well, I think it'll be interesting at mid-year. I think that what you're seeing with this switching over a little bit more to growthy names is concerned that the cyclical names have played out and uh, their growth will start to diminish in the second half. So what I'm going to be looking for is what are we seeing, especially from the more economically sensitive companies? Are they beginning to look for a slower earnings growth or a little pinch in their margins because of cost pressures, or will we continue to see uh, things looking great across the board and and another strong quarter and uh,
0: a strong rest of the year. How do we, though, at some point maybe – We've got to remember, we fell off a cliff. We're now bouncing back or climbing up that cliff in a big way. And that's the distortion that we are seeing in certainly the economic data points. And the markets are trying to find their way through it and kind of get through that data, filter through the data and understand and get some clarity. When we get on the other side, is it going to be, though, a similar environment to where it was pre-pandemic, where there was kind of okay growth, you know, that just kind of kept muddling along, but it actually turned out to be a, a fairly decent, environment because of the low rate environment uh, for the equity markets
6: yes that's what I think we'll see is continued um, growth in the in the moderate range and I think what you're seeing really is a pickup in gl- growth globally and mm-hmm. we aren't just where we were before the pandemic but in some indicators like consumer wealth we actually have far exceeded. Uh, the levels that we had pre-pandemic. So, in some ways, economy unbelievably is even better off than it was before we had the uh, the COVID crisis. Right. So that's a great foundation to keep moving forward.
0: Right. <laughs> Consumer wealth has far exceeded if you happen to be part of that group. <laughs> As we know, at the same time, there's incredible gaps in this community, and it's something that the Federal Reserve, led by Jay Powell, increasingly is looking at that. How might that impact? his moves when it comes to policy, in your view. We know they have the dual mandate, but Jay Powell and company and others have talked about the importance of when we see the job market come back, that it's not just white-collar jobs or the high-end jobs. It is much more diverse and impacts more of the labor market spectrum.
6: Yes, and actually, we have already started to see that. We've already started to see the increase in the bottom, say, two uh, quintiles of the marketplace, actually, as far as those wages actually moving up greater. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're a lot lower than the top quintile, but still we're actually seeing that turn, and I think that's perhaps somewhat a uh, a shortage of labor. I think it's also reflecting globally that the pendulum has swum back away from some of the emerging markets like China, and it will really benefit our workers long-term that we're not having our wages depressed by very, very cheap imports. So I think it's good all around fundamentally
0: One of the things that stood out from Michael McKee or Michael McKee's conversation with the Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan is that he did talk about the virus and the vaccine, saying we still have um, to weather the virus specifically. And he did say he's watching the Delta variant. How many conversations around the Zoom table or the virtual table at Wells Fargo? Do you folks talk about specifically maybe what is next when it comes uh, to COVID-19 and particularly the Delta variant and the impact it could potentially have on our society?
6: Well, the conversations that I've had and what I've heard from companies are really that their concerns about COVID, they always throw it in there, is really very, very much diminished just because a law of large numbers says that more than half the people, at least in America, have gotten at least one of the shots, uh, so that even if you have an impact from uh, the Delta variant, its impact is going to be relatively small. The other fundamentals are so strong, I think that says the economy is going to power ahead. Uh, in fact, it looks, of anything, like we have a labor shortage. So that says that the outlook for labor is going to be very good. How
0: quickly does that labor shortage right itself? As uh, our Michael McKee reminded, it's not new jobs that are being created. We're basically, you know, filling the existing ones that were lost because of the pandemic.
6: Well, that's all fine, because it still says every month more and more people are getting hired, and the average wages are moving up. So that's a great base to build on. And then Mm -hmm. I think as we move on, we'll start to see new businesses, new jobs be created.
0: And does, okay, so what keeps you up at night in terms of when you look at the investment markets?
6: Uh, well, I would say that uh, we feel pretty optimistic yeah, if we would it. see after midyear if we would see a dramatic slowdown because uh, it turns out that uh, growth is really um, being pulled down. Maybe from COVID around the world, mm-hmm. uh, maybe China's growth, which has slowed a tiny bit, uh, decelerates and that pulls down global growth. Uh, we're not worried at all about inflation. We uh, agree with the Fed. Maybe not all their policy, but we think that uh, we won't see inflation continue at. Uh, At this pace for very long, we think inflation will peter out. Why? Second half of the year. Why? Uh, Why? Because uh, I think that, number one, globalization is always deflationary. Technology is deflationary. And really, um, when you look at wages, wages are going up 3.5%, but a lot of what people spend their money on, cars, housing, have actually gone up 15 or 20%. So that says that consumers may, in fact, have their real wealth a little bit pinched as we go forward from these input pressures. So uh, we think that, uh, ultimately, the... um, We'll see uh, declining inflation back to that 2%.
0: When it comes to the fixed income market, is there a part of the market that you like at all? Well, we
6: still like high yield, although okay. it really isn't high yielding anymore. You're talking 3 <laughs> to 4%. Most bonds trading at a big premium, but uh, default rates have gone down to between 1% and 2%. So it's a market that doesn't seem to have a lot of risk. As long as the economy is growing, the Fed keeps liquidity flooded, we think it's a way to at least get another one or two percentage points more than higher quality securities.
0: All right, we're going to run. Hey, Margie, thank you so much. Counting us down to the closing bell uh, on this Wednesday. Margie Patel, she's managing director, senior portfolio manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Uh, they've got about 590 uh 590 Billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from Boston.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com.
0: And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube.
1: Search Bloomberg Global News.